Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room, a happy Midsummer Classic to you. That's right, we've just finished up MLB All-Star Week, or Weekend rather. It's a little confusing when you have Monday and Tuesday and the, the kind of the softball game and the Futures game on late Sunday. It's more like a week. Regardless, I'm Chris Russo, uh, here for Sports in the Waiting Room, and we get started with the Home Run Derby. Let's start with the Home Run Derby, then get into the All-Star Game. Now, Juan Soto wins the Home Run Derby this year, defeating Julio, Julio Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners 19-18 in the final round. Rodriguez, with probably the biggest knockout, eliminating the two-time defending champion Pete Alonso in the semifinals. And it wasn't even that close, but I think a lot of it was due to the line drive pacing. Now, a quick aside here, I was not able to watch... A good portion of this, probably not up until the, not even really the semifinals, probably until the, the, the finals. That's all I could really watch because Monday was the David Cohn Celebrity Golf Outing, David Cohn Celebrity Golf Classic and Dinner, which raised money for the Ed Lucas Foundation. You may remember that a few, a few months ago, sadly, Ed passed. If you do not remember Ed, if you have not listened to that episode, I have not told you, then Ed was a sports writer. He passed away this past November at the age of 82. He was a bit of a family friend of ours. As we got to help volunteer for his foundation, we still do. We've done so for the last, boy, probably over a decade, I believe. And we, we try to help out with the tournament. We try to help out year-round, but this is the the banner day. So it pretty much takes up all day. Unfortunately, the weather was so bad on Monday here in North Jersey that we only got about nine holes in for the tournament, but still made a lot of money, raised a lot of money for charity. If you don't remember Ed, Ed was a sports writer, particularly for the Yankees, but he did some work with the Mets. He had done some work with the baseball Giants before their departure. He, when he was about 12 years old, after Bobby Thompson shot her around the world, he went to play a ball game, like a pickup baseball game at twilight. At age 12, he pitched. Line drive gets in between the eyes. He's blind for the rest of his life. But he, with the help of his, his mother early on, writing to teams, was able to get into clubhouses, go to my eventual alma mater, Seton Hall, and graduate from there, become, I think, one of the first, definitely the first person on Seton Hall's campus, and I think one of, if not the first in America, with a guide dog on a college campus. I think Ed's part of the reason why I got, a small part of the reason why I got into, uh, part of why I got into Seton Hall, and how I was able to be so successful there. So uh, it was very kind to me. He's been very, it was very kind to my family as his, his wife, as his wife, Allison still is as the entire foundation is, but he wrote for the Yankees for many years. He surpassed the legendary public address announcer, Bob Shepard's record for most consecutive or most total home openers attended at Yankee stadium, the new and old. And so Ed was a dear, dear friend to all of us. So it was a very, very emotional evening. And we're very fortunate to have a number of people on hand, a number of good friends of Ed's on hand, both fa whether famous or not, to celebrate him. We raised a lot of money for the Ed Lucas Foundation. And I, I sincerely encourage you to research the Ed Lucas Foundation. We raised a lot of money for... For seeing eye, for the Seeing Eye Dog Foundation, for diabetes research, it also had diabetes, and it, it's diabetes and blindness are sometimes intertwined. I I can't remember everything off the top of my head, but there are a number of causes that where the the foundation spreads its money, and I am incredibly we are incredibly grateful to to Allison Ed's wife to everybody who works with the organization. So I, I sincerely encourage you to uh, please research the foundation and, and encourage you to, to donate and or volunteer your time 
we we very much appreciate it. Ed was a, a lovely man whose mark will uh, a great writer, regardless of his abilities, was a phenomenal writer, a good interviewer, and uh, just a good good person. So I just wanted to take that aside right there. But that's part of why I couldn't watch the entire derby. But well, that is the reason why I couldn't watch the entire derby. Didn't get home until a bit late. But Julio Rodriguez knocking out Pete Alonso thanks to really from what I could hear on the radio and it's weird to, to listen to uh, to listen to a home run derby on the radio. Uh, it, it's a lot different from listening to a game on the radio. But it sounded like Rodriguez really kept hitting a lot of line drives. And it's not like Alonso had a bad round, but it seemed like it was just the amount of pacing and, and the fact that he could hit a line drive home run so often. That's what really slowed down Pete Alonso. So that knocked him out. Pujols, th- this was really surprising. I figured that Albert Pujols, you know, was kind of a legacy honoree. He was... It was again. He was added as a legacy, not necessarily because of his play this year, but because he's in his 22nd. And I don't remember if he. I don't remember if he said for sure he's retiring after this year, but it's likely. And it was the same situation with Miguel Cabrera. He's he's played a couple fewer years. I don't know what it is with him, but Pujols ended up playing in the home run derby as well, and that's in part due to. It's funny, I would say that there were two or maybe three Yankees that actually could have been in this tournament, but did not declare they would do so. Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, maybe even Anthony Rizzo, three guys who, and there were probably some more guys who honestly opted out. Shohei Otani probably could have been in it, really. So Pujols was definitely not the first choice, let alone the eighth choice for this tournament, but surprisingly, even though I thought you might remember like 10, 12 years ago, there was a show on ABC that was called Shaq Versus, where Shaquille O'Neal would pretty much go up against anybody, at the an expert in any field. And I remember there was one thing where he did a home run derby against Albert Pujols. But even then, Shaq's fence was almost like the celebrity softball fence. That's almost what it was. It was probably like 200 feet. And Shaq still got his butt kicked. And I kind of felt like that's what was going to happen with Pujols and Schwarber. Even though Pujols is undoubtedly one of the greatest right-handed hitters of all time, one of the best power hitters in the history of the game. I, you know, He hasn't been that great the last couple of years. I thought Schwarber was going to mop the floor with him. Pujols pulls off the upset 20-19. That's the same score by which Pete Alonso knocked out Ronald Acuna Jr., early on. Again, Acuna only with eight home runs this year, but still, it's a guy who, you know, it makes a lot more sense that he is in the tournament. But Soto becomes the second youngest derby winner all time. It did also bring some questions, of course, to Soto. He deflected them beautifully regarding his future with the Nationals organization. The rumor is that he is being shopped around to a few organizations before the trade deadline, and he, he, he turned down a, a 15-year deal for, I think, about $30 million a year, something like that, something outrageous, but I guess did not want to be tied down to the Nationals for that long, essentially for the rest of his career, even for how young he is now. So, But he, he really played it beautifully, and that just really has a gorgeous swing. It was well-deserved that he he won this one. But the biggest highlight, perhaps, actually, besides Soto actually winning it, was that Ronald Acuna Jr. actually hit one out of Dodger Stadium. It was 472 feet, which surprised me because I had seen on my phone, I think I was on the way home, or, or maybe before I left, that Pete Alonso had hit one 480 feet, and that one had not left the yard. So I assumed that was probably closer to straightaway center, but Acuna hit one out over the left center field pavilion at Dodger Stadium. He is one of now only five players in history to hit one out of the park, but we'll we'll count this considering 1980, there was, I'm pretty sure there was no home run derby yet in 1980, or at least 
no home run derby at the All-Star game. There was, of course, the TV series home run derby back in the, I believe it was the 50s and into the 60s. But in 1980, the last time, somehow, the last time there was an All-Star game at Dodger Stadium, there was no home run derby. So we'll count this. There have only been five, or rather four players to do it in a game to hit a home run out of Dodger Stadium. The most recent, Fernando Tatis Jr., Giancarlo Stanton did it with the Marlins, Mark McGuire did it with St. Louis, and Willie Stargell, I knew he had done it once, I was surprised to discover that he had done it twice. Not to mention, he's the only player on that list who was a left-handed hitter, who was a left-handed hitter, so the fact that he could hit it out, uh, that was a lot more interesting, especially where he could pull it out. I, I think Stanton and... Stargell, I believe, hit it both in that little gap, that little alley behind the the, the bullpens in each uh, in each corner. Whereas McGuire, you know, uh, Stanton or McGuire and Tatis and in turn Acuna hit it over the pavilion, which is a lot tougher to do. But uh, uh, that was something very interesting. And then Julio Rodriguez, I think, made the biggest. I think was probably the biggest surprise for me, probably for anyone actually, finished with 81 total home runs, was the breakout star of the Derby, because we already knew that Juan Soto, despite being in only his fourth season, you know, he hit, I believe, four home runs in that World Series, his rookie year with the Nationals, was crucial to their success. We, we knew how big he was going to be, knew what he was going to be on that stage. We knew about... Well, he got knocked out in the first round, but Schwarber, we knew about Pete Alonso, we knew about Acuna, and, I mean, Pujols, we, I don't think I could have expected him to get out of the first round, but everybody knows Pujols, but Rodriguez really was the breakout star in this home run derby, and that's why he got, you know, such a nice ovation, such a nice ovation before the All-Star game. And as we get into the All-Star game, let's discuss the American League winning this one by a score of 3-2, to two, and winning it for the 10th consecutive year, I believe. It's either the 9th or the 10th, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's the second longest, it is the second longest streak by either league, second longest win streak by either league in the All-Star game, the other one being the American League that stretched from, I believe, 90. 6 or 97 through 2009, and then the National League won, I think, two or three in a row. And then it's gone back to the American League. Giancarlo Stanton wins All-Star Game MVP, becoming the fifth player to win All-Star Game MVP, a regular season MVP, and a home run derby. The other guys on that list, that's some pretty good company. Now, of course, the all, the home run derby has only existed since the, or at least within the All-Star Game weekend, since the 80s. And the All-Star Game MVP, believe it or not, has only existed, I would have figured it maybe would have dated back to the beginning, in 1933, with, you know, Babe Ruth's home run at Comiskey, at Comiskey Park. But the first All-Star Game MVP, it turned out, was handed out in 1962. So that does leave out a lot of players. However, this is still great company. The four other guys to win... A league MVP, a home run derby, and an all-star game MVP. Ken Griffey Jr., who is probably, the, I would argue, the best player of the last, God, half century or so. Won American League MVP in 1997. Won the all-star game MVP. Won multiple home run derbies, I believe. I can remember going to Camden Yards. Camden Yards is my favorite ballpark. And seeing the bottom floor of the B&O Warehouse Building, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Warehouse Building on Utah Street behind Wright Field, and it's awesome. You can see all the... I'm not sure if he won this particular home run derby, but they had it in 93, which was either the year of or the year after the opening of Camden Yards. Ken Griffey Jr.'s... Where, where his ball landed on the, the wall outside the, the first floor... They actually have a, a small baseball-sized plaque there. And you can see that, I think, for a number of baseballs that got out there during that home run derby. So that's that's incredible. And then you also have Miguel Tejada, 
won AL MVP in 02 with the A's and actually did play for the Orioles for quite some time. Cal Ripken Jr., of course, I would say the best shortstop of the uh, live ball era. And, uh, of course, a career Oriole. And then Dave Parker, a guy who perhaps should be in the Hall of Fame and may go in someday. Great longtime Pittsburgh Pirate, big part of the, the that We Are Family team in the 70s. Played for the Milwaukee Brewers for a time, I believe, and then was big for the Oakland A's in that you know, late 80s, early 90s group. So that that's especially good company when two of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. Tejada shouldn't go into Tejada was on steroids, but he was still you know good player. And then Parker, another great player. So Stanton is in great company there. And then uh, on top of that, I mean there were a few more things here. So Stanton won this award because in a real pitcher's duel game, it's very tough to decide an all-star MVP in a low-scoring game because, you know, most pitchers usually just go one inning now. And nobody went more than an inning on Monday night or Tuesday night. I think I can remember off the top of my head, I believe... When the All-Star game was at Fenway in 99 when they rolled out Ted Williams, when they brought out Ted Williams on the golf cart, I think Pedro Martinez might have gone three innings and was just dominant and won the MVP, also because he was at home. But that's like the only one I can think of off the top of my head. Now, Stanton, in this game, made the difference because he hit a two-run home run to even this game at two, 457 feet. That even this ball game, you figured once it got to 3-2 and once it stayed that way, unless things were going to change, it was probably going to be Stanton, maybe Byron Buxton, who ended up hitting the uh, game-winning, the eventual game-winning solo homer as they went back-to-back in the fourth inning. No runs were scored after the top of the fourth. As a matter of fact, the National League did not have a hit after the first inning or before the ninth inning. Second through eighth inning, nobody got nobody got got a hit. It may have been nobody got on base. But Stanton again, Los Angeles area native, grew up a Dodger fan. Grew up, I think he said actually, probably sitting at least a couple of times in the area where his home run landed. And so, so another really interesting thing. Somehow this this one I was really surprised about. It does make more sense considering the All-Star Game MVP was only founded in 62 because if it were founded in, you know, if it were founded at the beginning in 1933, you would have figured, oh, you know, Lou Gehrig might have won it, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, Phil Rizzuto, a number of these guys, Whitey Ford, maybe, whatever. But Giancarlo Stanton is only the third Yankee ever to win the All-Star Game MVP award in its 59-season existence. Take away the two years, take, no, of, well, actually the 60-season existence. Take away the 2020 season because of COVID and everything kind of got pushed back. Couldn't really have an All-Star game. Would have been kind of boring without people anyway. And we did have an All-Star game in 1994 because the league did not go on strike until August. So in the 60-season history of the All-Star Game MVP, only two previous Yankees had won. Derek Jeter in 2000, a year in which he made history, in which he also actually won World Series MVP. I think he's the only player ever to do it in the same year. And then Mariano Rivera in 2013 at City Field. That was his final season. He pitched him relief. He came in in the, he actually came in in the eighth inning because they weren't sure if there was, in case there wasn't a bottom of the ninth, and in case the National League made a remarkable comeback, they decided to put him in in the eighth. He ended up winning the award because everybody knew it was going to be his final season. He pitched quite well, but that was in some ways ceremonial. But Stanton certainly earned this one. It was a a very interesting game. Some hometown pride for the Dodgers in that Clayton Kershaw started. I was very surprised to find that this was Clayton Kershaw's first-ever All-Star Game start in his 15-year career. And you can argue he has been the best pitcher in baseball over the last 15 seasons. He is, you know, for, for all the history and all the great players the Dodgers have had, Clayton Kershaw is actually their all-time leader 
in wins above replacement. That's right, above Pee Wee Reese, Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Steve Garvey, Steve Yeager, Ron Say, a number of iconic players, Zach Wheat, if you're going, going way back, Don Drysdale, Don Sutton, Don Newcomb, Roy Campanella, a number of iconic, Sandy Koufax, a number of iconic players, and Clayton Kershaw is actually their all-time leader in war. So even though he did, did not perhaps have the best stats of any starting pitcher eligible uh, this year for the All-Star game, they're still quite good. He had a 2.13 going into this game, and for a guy in his 15th season, that is great. But it did well, pitched a scoreless first inning. Alec Manoa, I thought, was the strongest pitcher in this game, with the possible exception of Emmanuel Classe for Cleveland, who got the save. Both those guys struck out the side. Manoa did so in his lone inning, and Classe got the save. I was very impressed with Manoa being able to do that, not to mention, I mean, he may have been helped a little bit by John Smoltz and Joe Davis, but doing that while being interviewed in like 95 degree heat, something like that. It, I think it was getting close to triple. I know it was hot here, but I think it was getting close to triple digits in Los Angeles. Not to mention it's, you know, it's a five o'clock first pitch out there. So that was impressive. I, I liked what they did with the, the what, what Fox did with the microphones. I was just kind of hoping they would pod them up a little bit more and boost the volume because it was t- kind of tough for me to hear. I don't know if I'm alone in this. I or, or at least, uh, my, or at least, I don't think my household was alone in this. Hopefully, but it, it sounded a little low. But to be interviewed in the outfield is one thing. To be interviewed while pitching, that seems difficult. But that was very impressive. Again, Buxton with the eventual game-winning solo shot. Byron Buxton is a guy who has really become a much better hitter. Whereas you knew he was a great defensive outfielder, he has an outstanding arm, he's got so much range, but he has become a a much better hitter in this league, and a very very enviable five-tool talent. And and a couple more things I actually wanted to mention here that came before the game. We mentioned Jackie Robinson. Denzel Washington did a very nice tribute to Jackie Robinson I believe it's actually 50 years after his passing, but perhaps more importantly, and probably more importantly, 75 years since his debut breaking the color barrier. And, you know, we didn't get to, because of the unfortunate, you know, long-standing negotiations between the... Major League Baseball Players Association and Major League Baseball, we didn't get the uh, didn't get the real Jackie Robinson tribute. Didn't get the April fifteenth tribute this year. I think they're pushing it back. I don't even know. They might have had it already, but that's how that's how far it's been pushed back this year. And it's just weird because it's not on April fifteenth, which is the day he actually debuted. But people forget it's been seventy five years since Jackie Robinson made his Major League debut, breaking the color barrier, and I think Denzel Washington said it probably best, and unfortunately it is very true that it is just as prevalent now because, you know, God knows we still have such difficult and awful racial tensions it's it is unfortunately as prevalent now as it was back then but the the, the other thing that had to do with the the Robinson family is that Mookie Betts one of the you know great faces of the Dodgers today one of the great faces of baseball today led the Dodger Stadium crowd in wishing Rachel Robinson Jackie's widow and an incredible ambassador to the game, a happy 100th birthday on Tuesday. So, I mean, just two, you know, for, for what they had to endure, just two beloved people, two kind, courageous, uh, just lovely people. 
that we celebrated this past week and so appropriately at Dodger Stadium. We move on to a couple of stories coming out of the All-Star break. And I would say first and foremost, the Seattle Mariners become the first team ever to ride a 14-game win streak directly into the All-Star break. In about a month, the Mariners have gone from being 10 games under 500 to 9 over. They've slid into a playoff spot. And of course, there is the extra wild card this year. We're, we're now to six teams. Pretty much, it's pretty much what the what the NFL was. Besides, of course, the single game elimination. Pretty much what the NFL was before last year, where now they have six teams in each league in the postseason, and the top two get a bye, two wild cards. So the Mariners are in it right now. Of course, it's going to be very tough to catch Houston, but they've really crawled back in it, and. They, I mean, for what the Mariners were just a few months ago, the whole mess with their front office, I mean, it's remarkable that they won over, people forget that they won over 90 games last year. And if they're, I mean, if the playoffs had been expanded then, they might have been in. But, you know, it, it was their best season in a long, long time. And it's, it's very surprising considering, I mean, what they've done with some of their veteran players. I mean, again, I've mentioned before that, you know, the Mariners have been kind of a, a mess over the years at times. You may remember, I think it was Howard Lincoln's statement. I, I mentioned this at one point. It was Howard Lincoln's statement regarding the Mariners' actions to the trade deadline 20 years ago. I remember I had said, that I had read Lou Pinnell's autobiography. It's a great book. And he talked about how the Mariners, coming off you know, uh, four playoff appearances in a span of seven years, three trips to the ALCS in a span of seven seasons, including each of the last two years, uh, having won the most games in the Amer- having won the most games in a regular season in American League history and tied for the most in Major League history the year before, didn't do anything at the trade deadline in 2002. And Howard Lincoln, the, the the chairman of the Mariners at that point, pretty much came out and said, the Seattle Mariners are not an organization that's going to try to go out and win the World Series every year. We're going to try to field a competitive team every year and hope that at some point we'll win the World Series. And that is not an attitude you want regardless of the market, regardless of the budget, Whatever. You do not want to hear that from any owner, chairman, executive in baseball or in sports. And unfortunately, that mindset, whether or not it has changed in the Mariner front office, has not worked. Regardless, the Mariner front office has not done its job in the last 20 years. They have not been, they have not been to the playoffs in 21 seasons, and that includes a, a very expanded 2020 postseason. They've had some fine teams that, you know, if if it was more like an expanded postseason, the way the NFL has it, or the NBA or the NHL have it, then, you know, they'd be in and maybe they could do something. But the Mariners now, especially now that the Nationals have won the World Series, the Mariners are the only team in Major League Baseball history or at least the only active team, not to reach the World Series. And if they could finally get in this year, if they could finally get into the playoffs this year, it would be such a load off that city's back. Such a load off of that fan base. And a great, great start. Because they had, in the the 90s and the early 2000s, they had... Even later on, they had a plethora of talent from Ken Griffey Jr. to Randy Johnson to uh, you know to Jay Buhner to Edgar Martinez to pre-steroid Alex Rodriguez to Ichiro Suzuki, and then you know, Mike Cameron later on. A lot of these guys were phenomenal ball players, and the Mariners have not been able to get it done. They're going to get Mitch Haniger back in the next few weeks from a high ankle sprain. Kyle Lewis hopefully will bounce back from a concussion he suffered around Memorial Day. 
and Julio Rodriguez. Everyone has learned around Major League Baseball this past weekend that Julio Rodriguez is probably the best rookie in the league. He's probably the front runner for American League Rookie of the Year this year. And so, especially with that extra wild card, the Mariners could be on a pace to make a splash at the deadline if they are finally willing to go for it, if they are finally willing to to make that aggressive move. But to win 14 in a row before the deadline, even the Baltimore Orioles had a lo- had their longest winning streak in 23 years, pretty close to the All-Star break. And speaking of which, we'll go over a couple of the picks here in the MLB draft. The MLB draft is not nearly as popular or even as significant necessarily as those of the NFL, the NBA, or even the NHL because of the much larger depth. Uh, the, 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 there are so many more draft picks, so many more rounds in the MLB, even though they've cut it shorter than in those other sports, than in those other leagues. And on top of that, so many ball players in the, the way this sport and this league works do not come out of the draft. They're, they're signed internationally. It happens quite often. And so the, the draft doesn't have as big an impact. Now, we'll talk about a couple of guys here. First off, Jackson Holiday picked first overall. He's a shortstop out of Stillwater High School in Oklahoma. But most notably, his dad is retired uh, great Matt Holiday, legendary ball player with the Colorado Rockies, briefly with Oakland, won a World Series in St. Louis, played with the Yankees late in his career. Uh, great ball player, good power hitter, and a fairly good defensive outfielder. Holiday, believe it or not, or Jackson Holiday, believe it or not, is a left-handed hitter, and he plays shortstop. He is not... From what I've heard, not an incredible defensive shortstop, but the Orioles apparently have a couple of guys in their organization who could be set to come to the to the big leagues deep in the hole anyway. So he could be he could perhaps move over to second or move over to third. Not supposed to be an incredible defender, but he's supposed to have a lot of pop, which again, as, as much as this game has developed for infielders in terms of power hitting, shortstop, you know, still is not historically the most powerful position. Even second base, middle infield has never been a a hotbed for power hitting, even as the game has developed and we've gotten a few big guys over the years. Third base probably more so. First base a little bit if you can if you can teach him. It's going to depend on the development that the the Orioles are, are able to have with him at the minor league level and how quickly they can get him to the majors. And not just that, but where they can decide to put him. Because the way the Orioles have worked the last few years, they have not been able to keep a lot of their uh, big-name guys, if they've even worked out. We all know about the Chris Davis contract. And so, especially for the Orioles to have an 18-year-old guy, it, it is a, le- a little easier. You, you have a little more flexibility with how much time you have to develop him. You can get him earlier in his prime, but the, the development is going to be very important. So, I mean, but based on the way the, the Orioles have worked in the last few weeks, similar to the Mariners prior to this All-Star break and into the deadline, it's a, it's a very bright sign. The second pick, Drew Jones, another son of an all-time great, Andrew Jones, perhaps a future Hall of Famer, selected by the Arizona Diamondbacks, picked second overall. They give him a record bonus of $8.1894 million. That is the most ever for a high schooler, surpassing Bobby Witt Jr.'s draft bonus from, I think it was 2017, I believe. In 38 games played this year uh, in high school, another high school player, by the way, he was named Georgia's Gatorade Player of the Year. He hit 445, had a 
1494 OPS, which is just ridiculous even at a high school level. 16 home runs in 38 games, 14 steals in 38 games. He's a good all-around player, just like his father. His dad hit over 400 home runs for his career, and he is perhaps the best defensive center fielder of his era. Of course, I think you can put him a little past Ken Griffey Jr.'s generation, considering Jones came up in 96, Griffey was either 88 or 89, can't quite remember off the top of my head. But that's a significant pick for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Again, an 18-year-old guy would be pretty big to get him up earlier in his prime. Diamondbacks, another organization that has struggled quite a bit in the last few years, but it's it's about scouting and it's about development. So it, it's not just about finding the right guy. It's about really turning him into a proper ball player and having a, a good system top-down within the organization. The Texas Rangers also picked Kumar Rocker, who had uh, was with the Mets, or was drafted by the Mets, and then you know, things didn't work out there. He was picked again. They pick him at three. We'll see how that works out. And, and then one more thing regarding baseball. The Yankees reacquire Tyler Wade from the Angels. I never saw anything regarding a return, but Wade was kind of a good utility guy. He could play the infield or the outfield for the Yankees. He's a good base stealer. That will be big for them if their offense cools down at all. Good guy to jumpstart the lineup. We're not sure as to Aaron Hicks' health. He had returned after fouling that ball off his, kind of his shin, kind of his calf on his right leg. But he apparently returned, yet Wade will... I don't think the Yankees really need that much help going into the deadline. I don't think they need another starter. Maybe another reliever, considering the injuries they've dealt with. Not to mention, Araldus Chapman is barely back anyway, so not really sure what they will need, but Wade is a good supplementary return. I wasn't sure why they didn't sign him again in the first place, but they ultimately bring him back. I would think couldn't be for that big a fee from the Angels. Moving on, it's not as exciting as the first week, but we do have some more NHL free agency news, well, and trade news. First off, Carolina Hurricanes making a splash after losing roughly half their defensive core in the last week. They make a trade for Brent Burns. It's a four-team trade, but he was definitely the highlight. Burns, the leader in San Jose for so many years at that right point. He is 37, but played over 26 minutes a game last year, third most in the league. Was still ultimately the leader, at least in terms of the defensive core. He's a great goal-scoring defenseman for his career. He's very quick on the trigger. And very physical. He's a Norris Trophy winner. He's been deep in the postseason before. He helped lead the Sharks to the Stanley Cup Final in 2016. It's an interesting deal. It's a, it's a good deal to... I mean, look, he, look, he's definitely an upgrade over Tony D'Angelo. At least in terms of talent and experience. Not in terms of age. But in terms of talent, experience, and I would say probably camaraderie. Considering what, what has happened with D'Angelo in the past, be it in Carolina or in New York. But Burns is the, even though he's a defenseman, he is the big-time goal scorer, at least on the back end, that the Hurricanes needed. They also acquire Max Pacioretty and Dylan Coghlan from Vegas for future considerations. Pacioretty is, again, older, but the sniper that Carolina really needs. They needed a goal scorer. They needed one big goal scorer to try to put them over the top. Now, I think they may have sacrificed much of their defensive core for that, but ultimately it could make them a better team. It's going to make them a different team, and it's just a question of how well their next guys are going to play into that system. But Carolina did what they had to in getting a scorer, getting a couple of scorers. Also, they get a little bit of youth in Coughlin, but... It's a question of how well they will play on the back end this year, especially with, you know, we don't know what their goaltending situation is going to be after late last season. The Anaheim Ducks signed Ryan Strome to a five-year, $25 million deal. He did have a career-high 21 goals with the New York Rangers this season. 
He has performed well with them, performed well with the Islanders, and in his brief stint with the Edmonton Oilers as well. He has gotten Selkie votes before. He's not bad on the back end. I mean, I don't know how great he is really on face-offs, but he has a positive plus-minus for his career. He's had over 50 points two of his last three seasons and was just short of it last year. Did a decent job with the Rangers in the postseason, albeit I think he benefited a lot from having guys like Artemi Panarin and Mika Zibanejad. The biggest problem was that he didn't finish a lot of his opportunities. That was the biggest problem. He could fan on a decent amount of ones or just miss wide on a lot of one-timers. So he just needs to finish his opportunities more consistently. The Ducks are getting better for sure, but Strom does have experience. He's, he's had a deep playoff run with the with the Rangers this past year, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see how he works out there. Johnny Goudreau signs a seven-year deal with the Columbus Blue Jackets at $9.75 million a year. It was a bit surprising. A lot of people expected him, as I did, to sign perhaps with the Philadelphia Flyers or with the New Jersey Devils based on his situation coming from Kearney's Point, New Jersey, which is just across the Delaware River from Delaware, kind of Newcastle, Wilmington area, just south of Philadelphia. The Devils have a lot of cap space. The Devils are going to get a lot better, or at least should get a lot better. The Flyers are sort of in more of a rebuild, but again, Goudreau was going to sign long-term. So it was a bit surprising when he signed with Columbus, but ultimately, I think this is a good signing. Again, he is, you know, Columbus is, I think, like a six-hour drive from Philadelphia. It's not terrible. And it's another team that I think is slowly improving, bringing in guys like Dubois. I know he could be on his way out, I, I know, but the Blue Jackets seem to be getting back into an upswing a little bit, seem to be getting better. And if you read, I don't know if it's Mark Shag or Shag, I believe it's Shag's Hockey News article. There's an article in the Hockey News by Mark Shag about Columbus becoming a more desirable destination for hockey players. This was a big deal for Columbus to get a guy like Johnny Goudreau. This is the first time they've really gotten a such a marketable free agent because you think about the best guys who have played there. Rick Nash was drafted there in their inaugural season. Artemi Panarin was traded there and then ultimately left to go to the Rangers. You talk about Seth Jones, you know, didn't last there. Patrick Laine was traded there. And so it's happened. Uh, Sergei Bobrovsky, it's happened, you know, time and time again, and the Blue Jackets, even though they're a fine organization and I think has a very underrated fan base, they've been unable to attract big free agent names. This could set a precedent. If you read Mark Scheich's Hockey News article about Columbus, it is a great destination because it is, one, it is actually, some people may not realize it's one of the largest cities in America, by population, I think it's actually 11th or 12th in the United States. Ohio is one of the bigger states in the U.S. It is you know, fairly close to a lot of major cities, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Detroit, Chicago, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh. It, geographically, it's not a bad location. You may, you might have seen these ads recently where it's, you know, I think it's something like Ohio is for business leaders. Columbus is attracting a lot of retirees, young people, it, it's a, it's a, it seems like a great place to live. Of course, it is the hub for, of course, it is the home of Ohio State University, which is one of the premier public universities in the United States. And even though the Blue Jackets are only the, are the only professional team in the major, in the major four sports there, they also have the Columbus crew. They, Columbus is a great sports town. And it's it's great in a lot of different ways. I've been I've only been there once. I flew into Columbus. My friend Wilner Lewis and I were doing something for Seton Hall basketball for WSOU. We covered the women's basketball team and their game at uh, the WNIT game at Toledo. 
Of course, you can't fly from New you can't fly from Newark directly into Toledo, so we flew into Columbus. The team practiced at Ohio State's facility, which was awesome to see, and then took a two-hour drive up to Toledo. So again, it's a very central location, but it is it it, it seemed like quite the city with a lot of uh, really nice facilities. So you know, Columbus is I've heard I've heard very good things about it, and it's an organization. I mean, that whole fan base with the fifth line, it's a great fan base. It's a great fan base. Nationwide Arena seems like a great facility. People also do not realize that Columbus is kind of one of the corporate centers of America, really. You know, you think of New York constantly. You probably think of Chicago, too. But Columbus is probably the insurance capital of America. When you look at Nationwide in particular, I know Cleveland is progressive, but... you look at Columbus, it really is a, a financial corporate center, economic center of the United States. So it's tending to draw a lot more people. There are some manufacturing jobs there as well. And it does seem like a good place to go. This is not just an ad for Ohio, by the way. I just want to point that out. But Johnny Goudreau, I think, made a good decision in wanting to go to the Blue Jackets, a team that I think actually has not necessarily the most winning culture, but a good culture. A good culture in a good area. I could also tell you, by the way, that Ohio has some of the nicest... My aunt lives in Michigan, and so we drove... We've driven out there. Ohio has some of the nicest rest stops you will ever... uh, Granted, New Jersey has, like, nothing in terms... As, you know, it's, it's really different in terms of rest areas. They've gotten better in the last few years, but... If you go to the South or you go to Ohio, some of the nicest rest areas you will ever go to. But yeah, Columbus, I think is, you know, you go back to 2012 when they gave the Penguins a run for their money in the first round. You go back to 2019 when they upset the Tampa Bay Lightning in the first round and gave Boston a run for their money in the second round. That place, Nationwide Arena, is a tough place to play for an opposing team. That crowd can get intense. So... I think it's a good signing. Moving on here, the Seattle Kraken signed Andre Burakovsky to a five-year deal. This one, this is maybe a bit of an underrated deal because he was not a top-line guy, but he did help lead, well, he was not a a first-line guy, but he was a a significant piece in helping the Colorado Avalanche win the Stanley Cup this past year. And some people may also forget, he was kind of an unsung hero when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup. You think of Ovechkin, of course, as he won the Conn Smythe Trophy, and you know we all know how long he had waited. But and of course, we think of Nicholas Backstrom, John Carlson, Braden Holtby, especially with that save in Game Two. But Andre Burakovsky, some people may forget, had two goals in Game Seven of the Eastern Conference Final in Tampa, a four nothing shutout win. He is a, a good postseason performer and a good overall player out on the wing. So it, it's. It's a promising signing for Seattle. It's just a, a matter of whether they, can, whether they can attract more free agents and whether they can really develop the organization better, develop their younger guys better. The New York Rangers signed Ryan Carpenter to a one-year deal. This is also rather significant because, again, I have mentioned living in this area, you watch the Rangers, and for years they've had they've had their, one of their biggest struggles despite being one of the premier organizations in, in the league over the last you know 15 or so years, they have always struggled on faceoffs. Ryan Carpenter faced ranked third in faceoff percentage with the Blackhawks last year. Now third out of you know four maybe five centers, you think that's uh, not great. 52.3 percent before being traded to the Calgary Flames in March. He was also third in shorthanded time on ice. So that's a big big signing for the Rangers, especially after losing a guy. That, you know they let Strom walk. He wasn't incredible on the draw. Andrew Kopp was a lot better on faceoffs, but Carpenter is a good third-line, fourth-line guy, and most importantly, he is going to win a lot of draws, kind of kind of like a Matt Cullen type a little bit. He's a good face-off guy who can play, who can do a good job shorthanded. The New Jersey Devils made a very interesting signing, picking up Andre Pilat for a five-year, $30 million deal, luring him away from the Tampa Bay Lightning. So it's $6 million a year, that is, you know, historically maybe a little bit of a steep price for the Devils, who have been 
a lower budget organization over the years. They have more workmen like forwards, but things have changed. They've developed a more offensive team in the last couple of years, a very, really an offensive juggernaut. Palat is a good all-around player. He's 31, so you know it's a little it's a little tough to get a guy at 31 when you're going to sign him for six million for six million a year. But he is ultimately a guy who has won the Stanley Cup twice. He's been to the Stanley Cup final four times, been to the conference final six times. He's a guy who will bring experience to the organization. He was one of their top goal scorers in the postseason last year. Was very crucial. Good, not a bad facilitator either. It's interesting. I, I'm guessing he's going to play on the first line with Hughes. I'm not sure, but he's a good top two line guy who should make a difference and try to instill that winning culture on these younger guys. The Pittsburgh Penguins trade Mike Matheson and a fourth-round pick to the Montreal Canadiens for Jeff Petrie and Ryan Poling as the Penguins are, again, training youth a little. I mean, Matheson a bit younger than Petrie, but they are trading a bit of their youth in exchange for experience. I don't know how great a deal this is for Pittsburgh when you consider that I mean, they were, they're already a team that I don't think is so predicated on youth in, th- in the first place. They brought back Malkin and Latang, which, I mean, could help, but... I mean, look, they're still two premier players, but they're ultimately making their organization a lot older, and it's kind of tougher when, you know, the Penguins have not been out of the first round, have not gotten past the first round of the playoffs... Believe it or not, it's been five years, or rather four years since they won a playoff series. It's been five years since they reached a conference final. They've made the playoffs each year, each of the last, God, like 16 years or something like that, which is ridiculous. But, you know, time and time again, despite winning the Stanley Cup, a number of times, particularly in the last four or five years, they've gotten knocked out early in the postseason. So... To, I think, trade away some of their youth. I don't know how smart a deal this is. Montreal, it's it's not a terrible return. But again, you know, they get Mike Matheson. They get a fourth rounder, which is not incredible. Jeff Petrie has been a pretty solid blue line guy for them for a number of years now. For eight years in that organization, I believe. Helped them get to the Stanley Cup Final, make that surprise run in 2021. But for, for Pittsburgh, he's getting... Well, Montreal clears up a lot of cap space, first off, because Pittsburgh's going to be absorbing a big hit here. Three years, $19.75 million left on Petrie's deal. Now, I know the cap is supposed to go up... Is it next year, I believe? that the rumor in the NHL, but over $6 million a year for, I mean, a defenseman who is not one of, he's not exactly a top two defenseman on every team. He's a good player, but I don't, I, I don't quite get this one for Pittsburgh in particular. The New Jersey Devils, actually, I forgot to mention, do make another deal. They had traded for Vitek Vanacek. They signed him to a three-year, $10.2 million deal. Quite reasonable for a goaltender who could end up being their starter. They avoid arbitration. And so, you know, with Mackenzie Blackwood, and then I, I don't know what they're doing with Aaron Dell exactly, but Vanacek, who was kind of rotating with Samsonov. It was an interesting situation with Washington, and then he was in Seattle. So I don't know quite what it's going to be, but if you're going to sign him for $3.4 million a year, you probably expect him to be your starter. Again, to ink him for only three years, though, I think leaves a little more trust in Blackwood. Mackenzie Blackwood looked at times like he could be the guy for the Devils, but he just suffered a lot more from injuries last year. I wouldn't be surprised if they platoon these two guys. Callie Yarncrook signs a four-year, $8.4 million year with the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's a good depth signing. 
He has deep playoff experience. That's perhaps the most important thing. He can play at both ends. He has deep playoff experience, reached the Stanley Cup final with Nashville in 2017, wasn't exactly a you know, quote-unquote bus driver. I know that we, were, we use that more in the NBA. But it is you know, a guy who's played deep in the postseason that can, then play, that can play for Toronto here, a team that has not gotten, out, gotten past the first round since 2004. One more thing from the Devils, as I'm doing this sort of out of order, they trade Ty Smith and a third rounder to Pittsburgh for John Marino. Not a terrible return for the Devils. I have friends who are Devil fans who have kind of talked smack about Ty Smith for a long time, how he did not play up to potential. John Marino is a good player, and that's that's not that's a fairly even deal. It's not terrible either way. Pittsburgh could perhaps develop him a little bit more. Again, they do they do get a little bit of youth there. Marino, Devils try to get a little more experience. Those are two teams in different in different states right now. Now, a couple pieces of sad news. One that Eddie Olchek is leaving the Blackhawks booth at CSN Chicago after 15 years with the organization after being unable to negotiate a contract with team ownership, he will stay on at TNT. Edzo, of course, one of my favorites. I, I recommend you read his autobiography, by the way. And I believe, I want to say Doc Emmerkrook the forward for that one. But Eddie Olchek, of course, had, had worked for NBC for many years, succeeded John Davidson as the broadcast partner to Doc Emmerich. Worked with him for many years before Doc retired from the booth. Had taken over with Kenny Albert in the final year at NBC, and now they work together at TNT. I do, I do love Eddie Olchek. I hope that uh, everything is that you know he works everything out okay because of course he's battled cancer before, and it's you know it's kind of difficult just to try to move out of the booth. He's still he's from the Chicagoland area. Still lives there, and you know I just hope that he is able to manage the travel. I, you know, I I'm not I'm certainly not at that point where I travel consistently as a broadcaster yet. But I, I did for a little bit at Seton Hall, but it was you know still I was still managing my studies. It wasn't that common. It wasn't like I was traveling you know once a week. But th- th- that that is not easy. It's difficult on people at times. But very very nice to see he could manage a 15-year career with the organization as a broadcaster, besides the fact that he was already a beloved player with the organization. And then Andre Sekera retires after 16 seasons. Good defensive defenseman. Again, if you play 16 years of the NHL, you must have done something right. Finished with 253 career points in 842 games. I remember him primarily with the Buffalo Sabres, but he also played with Carolina, the Kings, the Oilers, and the Dallas Stars. Before we go, let's talk briefly about the Open. Cameron Smith of Australia wins his first major at the Open after shooting a final round 64. That's 8 under par for the day, 20 under par for the entire tournament. Cameron Young, I will say a Westchester native and a Fordham Prep grad. I thought that was pretty cool. So from this area, shot 19 under for the week. Shot 7-under for Sunday, a final round 65. Made this incredible eagle putt just to even things up before Smith knocked down a, a pretty easy putt. That was the difference in this tournament. Rory McElroy, who has waited so long since his last finish, or since his last championship at a major, finished at 18-under. Had the lead for most of Sunday, shot two over for sun, two under for Sunday, at seventy. But I mean, eighteen under at most other tournaments gets you a win. It was an impressive performance, but for a guy who is aging a bit, who has waited so long, rather a difficult finish. Six Americans finished in the top ten, but only one in the top five. That was young. At 19 under par, Smith with one of the more remarkable performances at any tournament in recent memory. 
Moving on to the NFL for just a brief moment, Eddie Goldman retires after six seasons, seven total years in the league. He opted out of the 2020 season due to COVID concerns just weeks before beginning what would have been his first season with the Falcons. And the Phoenix Suns re-signed DeAndre Ayton to a four-year, $133 million deal after they matched the offer sheet with the Indiana Pacers. He was a restricted free agent, so they had the opportunity and the right to match any team's signing sheet. You know, there was some controversy with Ayton near the end of last year regarding Game 7 in particular, how frustrated he was with head coach Monty Williams and that blowout loss, a surprising blowout loss at home to the Dallas Mavericks. But, I don't know, at least looking at the photos that the Suns posted on Twitter, he actually looked pretty happy while signing. So, you know, I'd like to be not cynical, and I would hope that Suns fans stay the same. But ultimately, ultimately if he re-ups for four years, look, they had the opportunity to... They, they, they can trade him after a year... Well, they can trade him within the year with his consent, but you know they have the opportunity to trade him, but we'll see. He looked, I don't know, I, I like to look at the bright side. He looked happy to me. Try not to be too cynical. That does it for us this week. I very much appreciate your time. Again, please do your research on the Ed Lucas Foundation and help any way you can. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time here on Sports in the Waiting Room.